0: LegalizeFreedom.com
1: Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com I'm your host Greg Moffat and my guest today is Mike Berners-Lee co-author of a new book, Entitled The Burning Question We can't burn half the world's oil, coal, and gas, so how do we quit? Climate change is the most fascinating scientific, political, and social puzzle of our time. Great minds, enthusiastic leaders, and green warriors have all tried to tackle the problem, but so far the world's efforts at reducing global warming have failed. We do our best to save energy, and technologies have made burning fuels more efficient. But the simple fact is, carbon emissions are still accelerating upwards, following an exponential curve that goes back centuries. Like squeezing a balloon, reductions in one place lead to increases elsewhere. The real barrier to action is that the world has far more fossil fuel in its reserves than it can safely burn. At least twice as much, and perhaps ten times as much. These reserves are worth tens of trillions of dollars and solving the problem means persuading the world to abandon them. The burning question asks whether that's possible and what the side effects might be. Would the global economy sink and oil companies crash as the carbon bubble bursts? Or could we transition smoothly to a green future? Looking at the whole issue from a fresh perspective, the burning question argues that global warming can still be tackled but only if humankind wakes up to the threat And demands that the fuels stay in the ground. Hello and welcome, Mike, and thank you very much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. Hi. Mike, today we're going to discuss uh, your new book, which you've co-authored with Duncan Clark, and it's called The Burning Question, subtitle, We Can't Burn Half the World's Oil, Coal and Gas, So How Do We Quit? And you point out early in the book that basically human history is essentially history of energy our relationship with and use of it uh, but increasingly um, in the end of 20th century into the early years of the 21st we're experiencing a lot of problems around energy energy security um, supply we see prices for domestic and industrial users climbing. i mean oil is off its all-time peak but the trend seems to be uh, in more or less in one direction and we do need to do something to wean ourselves off our addiction to oil. Difficult, of course, because our industrial civilization depends on it. There's issues around renewables and nuclear, perhaps not showing the promise that we hoped. And of course, there's a threat from global warming, climate change, call it whatever you will. And this the first stark fact in the book that you present is that for the layperson, it's easy to think that with all this, these issues facing us that they, quote unquote, experts, are doing something about this. But in fact, fossil fuel use, and emissions have both been rising exponentially for more than a century. Now, how on earth do we explain that? So we wrote this book because we, out of a sense that
0: some of the big picture analysis of what's the, the sort of global systemic um, phenomenon of climate change hadn't properly been flushed out and, and, wasn't, and wasn't popularly at least, but wasn't popularly understood. So we, we, we set out to write a do a, a very big picture analysis looking, you know, originally we, were, we even thought about calling the book The View from Mars because it was taking a, a, a very big picture view on it and when you do that, one of the first things you spot is that uh, global emissions have been rising exponentially since 1850 which is when we've got records from, uh, or decent records from, uh, and probably beyond uh, probably before that, and by exponentially I mean that they've been averaging out at about 1.8% growth per year, every year. And occasionally there have been a few years that are a bit higher than that, but they're always followed by a few years that are a bit lower. And it's a a remarkably predictable exponential curve. And that, that actually tells us a few very important things. So the first thing it tells us, as you point out, is that nothing that humankind has done to try and cut those emissions has made any detectable difference to that curve. So none of the um, talk about climate change, none of the global politics about climate change, none of the energy efficiency, none of the national targets or anything like that 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 we all hope might be at least beginning to make a difference, none of that has made any detectable difference whatsoever to this very predictable rising exponential curve. So that's the first thing that it tells us. But it also tells us some other equally important things it tells us that it's likely that energy efficiency isn't going to be, on its own, isn't going to be the solution. Because if you look back over the last 150 years, actually that's a story of increasing energy efficiency and innovation around energy that's been going on all the time. So 150 years ago we were using candles and now we're using LED light bulbs. Um, 150 years ago, we were using coal to drive steam engines, and now we're we're harnessing energy far, far more more efficiently than that. So the kind of popular and obvious thought that an efficiency improvement might cut our overall consumption of energy and maybe our overall um, need to to dig fossil fuel out of the ground is, is, is understandable. But in actual fact, when you look at it a bit more closely, it turns out not to be right. The way the dynamic goes, it looks far more likely that actually the more efficiency we've got, the more uh, we find ourselves wanting to use energy because it becomes more useful, and the better able we are to uh, go and dig it out of the dig, dig energy dig fuel out of the ground. And so, actually, the process of improving our efficiency has actually been feeding that dynamic of increased energy consumption. So that doesn't mean that. That doesn't tell us that efficiency is a bad thing, uh, but it does tell us that on its own, it leads to, it leads to increased rather than decreased consumption. And the, the predictability of the curve, the 1.8% a year with you know, plus or minus, not very much, tells us that there's a very fundamental global dynamic at play in which energy begets energy, and it's like a snowball, just the, the bigger it is, the bigger it gets. So we need a different kind of approach to do, to, uh, if we want to crack that curve we need a different kind of approach from the sorts of solutions that are usually talked about.
1: Now, of course, first thought—you don't have to be a mathematical expert—but first thought about exponential curves is that they don't go on forever. So, where does this like you to to end up? Not so much in terms of all the broad consequences, but just looking at the numbers of this and this way this trend is going.
0: Well, as you say, all exponentials come to an end. So um, we know for sure that we're going to be coming off that exponential curve. Within 600 years, because if we stayed on it for 600 years, we'd be burning all the oxygen in the Earth's atmosphere every single year. So that's clearly ridiculous and impossible. But um, coming forward to a sort of shorter times timescale, uh, we're pretty sure that within 100 years, even if we, even if our expectations about what we might discover in the in the ground, um, the new discoveries we might make, even if you know, if, even if um, they exceed our expectations. In, within the next hundred years, we'd run out of everything, every scrap of coal, oil, and gas. So we're definitely coming off it in the next hundred years. But actually, you can you can you can take that timescale in quite a bit further because if you look at all the climate change predictions for two degrees, three degrees, and four degrees, and nobody knows for certain what sort of temperature is caused by what kind of um, cumulative carbon emissions. But it looks pretty clear that. Uh, unless we leave the vast majority of the fuel that we already know about and are already gearing up to extract in the ground, probably for all time, uh, we are at very high risk of taking the temperature to temperature rises which are going to be very dangerous uh, for our species.
1: Now we'll come back to the uh, sort of the economics and politics of leaving fossil fr- fuels in the ground. In a moment, but perhaps you can say something about uh, an all-time carbon budget because that was a new a new phrase, a new idea to me.
0: Yeah, so there are lots of um, the the exact dynamics of how carbon emissions relate to the climate is is actually quite it's quite complicated. Um, there are different gases that we that we put up into the atmosphere, of which the most uh, the most important one is carbon dioxide. And the more we put up into the atmosphere, the more it drives the greenhouse effect, and but equally there are, there are various compensatory mechanisms that the, that the Earth responds, but there are also positive feedback mechanisms. So there, there are a range of quite complicated effects, but one quite good approximation uh, is to say that actually, in terms of the eventual equilibrium peak temperature that you that, w- that will arrive at, it doesn't much matter when we burn the carbon dioxide. What matters is the total amount that we've burned ever and the numbers turned out to be pretty good round numbers in that it looks as though for a 50% chance of staying within 2 degrees centigrade we need to make sure that we stay within a an all-time limit of a trillion tons of carbon uh, of which we've burned a majority already
1: now this 2 degree limit uh, that was agreed at the Copenhagen summit in 2009, I believe. But this is all still, as you've alluded to, against a background of great uncertainty because the climate uh, on the planet, which has always changed naturally, um, is an incredibly complex system with so many uh, inputs and variables, you know, natural and and artificial.
0: Yes, that's true. I I think for all the you know, for all the numbers that get quoted around about, about different levels of emissions causing different temperature rises and so on, uh, we need to keep, a very firm, keep very firmly in mind that actually all this, all this is actually very uncertain. And for all the best modeling in the world, and there's a range of models and you can take the average of them and so on, and they, and they all try and predict different probabilities of different temperature rises and so on. But the the simple truth that they all tell us is that We don't really know for sure the ins and outs of all that. And what we do know is that the more carbon we put into the atmosphere, the more risk we're exposed to. We know those risks are very, very serious. And at a best estimate, if we want a 75% chance of staying within two degrees, then we need to keep um, the vast majority of the the fossil fuels that we already know about um, in the ground. For all time.
1: Now some people have mentioned a few potential positives in if we take climate change as to, to read global warming and you, you look at some of the potential effects in the book um, under the headings the good, the bad and somewhat more worryingly the beast
0: Yes that's right so it's easy to think if you live in a, in a fairly chilly and wet part of the world then it might, it's, it's tempting to think that a couple of degrees se- temperature rise um, could, be, could be quite nice for some people uh, but of course, actually, uh, what that means for the whole world's uh, weather systems and uh, what that means for the carrying capacity of the world in terms of its ability to um, produce food, for example, it's almost certain, especially as you, as you get uh, over two degrees, it's almost certain that that's starting to lead to uh, you know, quite serious reductions, for example, in the, world's, in the, in the fertility of the world's land.
1: Now, uh, of course, you mentioned that we've got centuries left of fossil fuels, which, of course, one of your key arguments is we can't afford to actually burn those. Um, but centuries are not the, uh, the low-hanging fruit, so to speak, You know, that oil and other fossil fuels that was easiest to get, of course, was uh, used up first. But uh, we see now uh, some quite extreme things going on. Uh, we hear a lot about the dash for gas and shale oil and other conventional sources. And, of course, I recently did a show all about fracking, and all of those uh, methods, some of the dirtier ones, they have great environmental side, effect, side effects as well, but they do speak to our um, addiction and our need for these things. It's almost like any lengths, even though the the net energy, you know, energy used up to actually uh, get hold of these uh, fuels, that balance is not always taken into account.
0: Yes, that's right. So the, I mean, uh, if you look at the the fuel that's in the ground, there's some fuel that we we know about and we're pretty... Confident that it's currently commercially viable to dig out of the ground, and we call those proven reserves. And then there are possible reserves, um, which there's a, you know a probability uh, um, that that they'll be commercially viable at some point. And then there are known resources, which are fuels that we know where they are, but they're not yet. We don't think they're yet. It inc- includes fuels that we know about, but we don't think are yet uh, commercially viable to get out of the ground. And of course. There's a, there's a continuing process of discovery of more fuel and finding out ways in which uh, fuel that used to be uncommercial to get out of the ground can actually become commercial. Uh, and as the price, if the price of fuel goes up, then, of course, that changes the balance and it becomes more worth making more of an effort to go to tap into different reserves. And if you develop a new technology such as tar sands or fracking, then that opens up a whole, a whole new set of, uh, of fuel. So that process is going on um, all the time, and the total pot that we've got available to us uh, is growing all the time. So the last thing we need is more innovation to get even smarter at accessing some of the harder-to-reach um, reserves, which, you know, of course, is a, uh, a process which we're currently investing uh, you know, globally. We're
1: investing a lot of money in. Now, for those of us uh, in the UK and large parts of Europe, US, Australia, places like that. And particularly here in the UK, if you lived through the 1980s uh, minor strike, it's easy to sort of dismiss coal in our imagination as something that really just isn't a fuel source in any meaningful way anymore. But we look at some of the emerging economies, and particularly China, and some very surprising statistics in your book about the increased use of coal, which, of course, is very dirty.
0: Yeah, we all think that maybe the, the carbon intensity of our energy is improving because in this country at least, uh, in the the developed world, we hear about um, renewables uh, and and energy efficiency the whole time and it would be very easy to think that the world's energy mix was improving. But actually, if you look at the carbon intensity of the world's energy, it's pretty well flatlining. Uh, We think that, if anything, in the last 10 years, it's actually got worse. And the reason for that is that to a very great extent, the developing economies are powered by the most carbon-intensive fuels, and that's coal.
1: In many ways, fossil fuels, compared to, uh, say, for example, other fuels that we've used, uh, like you know, wood, uh, their, fossil fuels are quite unique in their characteristics and very difficult, if not impossible, to replace. And we have built, you know, over the, since the Industrial Revolution, we have built an enormous and growing infrastructure, including the built environment, Our transport systems, manufacturing, the way we provide heat and light, all of which is dependent on oil or other fossil fuels. Now some of this it may be possible to convert but much of it will end up being, if we go in the direction that Mm. you're advocating, will end up being um, obsolete and there's also the energy cost of actually converting or replacing that. Uh, Some experts say it's too late for example to use the oil that we would need to convert to solar.
0: Yeah that's right so so (laughs) if you take the view that we have to leave and it's I think it's, I think increasingly amongst people who really think about this and get to grips with the numbers, I think it's becoming It's no longer even controversial in, in some circles now that we need to leave fuel in the ground. So, so if, you take, if you take the view that uh, we need a, a global deal that cuts the rate at which fossil fuel is taken out of the ground, which looks absolutely clear, then the question is, well, why is it so hard to, to, to bring that deal about? Why, why are we so wedded to being, to, um, to extracting this stuff that it's clearly going to be harmful to do? And the, one of the answers, turns out, is that it's worth so much money. So there are tens of trillions of dollars of fuel reserves in the ground, and that, those reserves are owned by companies who want to dig it up and sell it, and it's, they're owned by com, uh, countries that, who balance their books uh, using it. Uh, and the UK did that for a while and America definitely does it, and you know, a, host, a host of countries do that. And then on top of the value of the fuel themselves, as you say, there's, there's all the infrastructure. And we, think, we actually think the infrastructure uh, problem is less serious than the value of the reserves itself. A lot of the infrastructure will go out of date in its own time anyway and will need replacing and so can be replaced with something that's fit for a, a low-carbon world. Uh, some of the remaining infrastructure will be adaptable, at a cost, but not 100% cost. It'll be cheap, maybe cheaper than uh, th- than throwing it away and, and starting from scratch. And even if you even if you have to take something apart, I mean, uh, Hadrian's Wall is still being used. You know, the bricks from Hadrian's Wall are still in houses that are being lived in today. So you know, it's not 100% write off even in that in that case. So we we don't think the infrastructure write off. We think it's serious, but we don't think it's a
1: showstopper. I think most people will be aware that renewables aren't uh, an unalloyed good. There are issues there. One of them being that they're all actually quite oil intensive in their own way, surprisingly. So it seems somewhat counterintuitive. Nuclear in particular, not only in the wake of Fukushima, but there's always been the issue of how to store and how to potentially process the waste products from that. And I know you mentioned thorium reactors, but there's a question as to whether those even after all these decades of research mm. it can actually be viable. And then with, with solar and wind, you know, we, we, get, we get simple protests along the lines of, you know, not in our backyard with wind turbines and we have solar. I mean, Germany seems to be the only developed country that's doing anything meaningful along solar lines. Or we had here in the UK, for example, last year that the, the government's solar panel subsidy was so successful, they cancelled it, which was bizarre. Mm.
0: Yeah, I mean, as I say, we hear a lot about um, renewables, and of of course they're they're a good thing. But in the scheme of the world's energy supply, they are an absolute speck. And frankly, for the foreseeable future, um, that's about where they look as though they're going to be. So it's not realistic to think that in the next few decades, which is the timescale in which we need to turn our carbon emissions around, we're going to suddenly be able to replace our fossil fuel with renewables. It, that's not to say it isn't a good idea to push the button on them as, uh, as, as hard as we can, but we should be um, realistic about what they can and can't deliver. As far as the nuclear question goes, I think that the details of the of the, the policy decision about um, what the role of, of nuclear is, is is incredibly complex, and clearly it's a question of balancing up costs and opportunities and risks uh, you know, against the alternatives. What would happen if you put, uh, invested your, your effort into the alternatives? And I think unless you really roll up your sleeves and do a lot of homework on the, on the specifics of, of that um, analysis, it's actually quite difficult to take a position on it. But what I would say about it is this, that the, the nuclear debate has attracted... Entrenched positions for decades uh, on both sides, and what, we think, what we'd urge everybody to do is throw away all their preconceptions about the, the nuclear argument, because the traditional arguments, as, as they stood, you know, even 10 years ago, or, or certainly 20 years ago, have now changed um, completely. Because we've got we've got a climate change threat that is really big uh, and needs to be taken very, very seriously indeed. And meanwhile, some of the threats around nuclear seem to have mitigated somewhat, and then there's as a whole cost equation. It looks as though nuclear uh, uh, is actually quite costly. but I think rather than rather than take a very uh, a very firm view on it, I think what I'd just encourage is for everybody to be really open-minded, whatever camp you've been on since you know since you're uh, you know, for the last few decades, um, how, however wedded you feel to, to um, pro or against nuclear, just we all need to be more, we all need to reevaluate that argument.
1: A lot of the names will be familiar to us, Rio, Tokyo, Copenhagen, and you point out to date there's been something like 18 international climate summits using, I would point out, a lot of CO2 with their yeah. uh, private jets, five-star hotels, and yeah. lobster thermidor or whatever they're having, but there's been a top-down failure, and we see this in the area of, of energy yeah. and climate change. And we, but we, it's almost expect as we see international summits, for example, now on the financial crisis, and we kind of expect these leaders to get together and kind of shuffle papers for a couple yeah. of weeks and go home when they achieve very little. But one of the other things, again, that's counterintuitive in the book that you point out is the for the bottom-up approach that a lot of people are advocating that well, we just have to start changing individually and on in a, you know, in a local community level. These things have a neg- negligible impact, but that's not to well, say that we shouldn't do them.
0: No, exactly. I, I think we want to be very clear about what we're saying here because I think what, what we're not saying is we shouldn't do them. And in fact, our conclusion is, in the end, our conclusion is that it is even more important than ever uh, that we do do all that kind of stuff uh, at, a, you know, at a local scale and more, and the reason is this: so it's clear that we need a global deal on the rate on, on the fossil fuel that comes out of the ground to cap the rate to cap the fossil fuel that comes out of the ground. And once you accept that conclusion, everything revolves around the question of what would it take to create the conditions under which such a deal would be possible. Now, at the moment, it's clear that the, the political process is completely lacking, and it's unhelpful. I've, I've heard one or two UK politicians recently saying, um, "Okay, we all think the global process uh, isn't going very far, but actually, it is showing some signs of, of beginning to get somewhere." And I think, in the context of where it needs to get to, compared to where it's get, compared to what those signs of progress might be, I think we need to keep a very clear perspective that it really is absolutely nowhere near even beginning to look as though it might be leading towards the kind of deal that we need so the, 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 the current political process is, uh, is nothing like what is required so the question is what would it take to bring about the conditions under which such a political process really could start to work in a way that, that might deliver what we need and when you start asking that, those questions, I think it takes you to the point of saying, well, what, ca- how can we bring about a situation in which politicians the world over are fearing for their political careers if they don't get that deal? Uh, and they aren't seen to be pushing so hard for that deal that they're part of the reason why it comes about. And what would it take for a politician to feel like that? Well, they probably need to understand that their electorate doesn't just have an armchair concern about it, the kind of concern where when somebody comes up to you with a a questionnaire on the street and says, are you concerned about climate change, you say yes. That's not the kind of concern we're talking about. We're talking about the kind of concern where it's actually palpable, that it's finding its way into your behaviours as proof that it will find its way into how you vote. And there there needs to be a sense that everybody cares about this stuff. And that's and the probably the only way of showing that in a way that that is believable is by doing it
1: Well, of course the issue here is that uh, at all levels. Nobody uh, Wants to give anything up fundamentally. I mean we see that now mm. uh, With the sense of financial crisis of 0708 that even with relatively modest austerity for example here in the UK yeah. we see um, quite out of proportion reactions from the people and also from you know political leaders on various sides and immediate calls to get back to growth um, which which is one of the problems
0: yes i think this whole debate gets unhelpfully framed up around giving things up because overall there's no reason why this needs to be a giving up kind of agenda it's not as though the way that we do life at the moment is fine-tuned for maximizing human well-being you know, there's plenty of human activity that goes on which trashes the planet and delivers absolutely nothing for human well-being. So yes, it's a time of change. We do need to look at the way we uh, do life in some respects, but the idea that overall it's going to be some cost to um, you know how good the experience of of being alive is is I, I think it's I think it's misplaced. So there's strong evidence that, at least in the developed world, their economic growth doesn't correlate at all well with well-being. So it looks as as though, it's not that economic growth is an irrelevant measure, but it's being used for the wrong things. So it's being used as a proxy for everything that matters to us. And it absolutely isn't that. And that is part of the problem. I think it's worth talking about the business case as well because we hear a lot about the business threat from climate change. So there are certainly some sections of industry that feel a very strong threat to the idea of a cap on the rate of combustion of fossil fuel. So in particular, the oil industry. And it's pretty clear that there are hundreds of millions of, uh, of dollars have been pumped into uh, creating confusion over what the science is and propaganda, the skeptics, spurious skeptics propaganda and misleading the whole world over the, uh, over the climate change agenda. And that looks as though that's come from a part of the business community that sees a very obvious threat because there are assets that may need writing off, will need writing off, and have responded to that. But what hasn't, I don't think, been adequately grasped is that actually there's a massive Uh, business opportunity out there as well so there are plenty of businesses who have a strong commercial interest in pushing for a global deal on capping emissions I'll I'll just explain a bit about where that comes from so at the moment if humankind wants to have more utility of anything it's got two basic routes that it can go down in in order to have more it can either burn through more resources just dig more fuel and uh, dig more fuel and other resources out of the ground to use them up, and, and then it can have more stuff and do more things and travel more and burn more energy and all the rest of it. But and the other way of doing it is to become smarter and more efficient at creating things and doing things, and to innovate new ways of doing it. So at the moment there are two ways of uh, of, of having more, and we tend to do a bit of both. We become more efficient and we also burn through more resources. If we cap the resource that we use, then suddenly, if we want to maintain or grow our utility, there's only one way of doing it, and that is to become more efficient or to become smarter or to invent a new way of doing something. So if you are in the business of innovation and efficiency, let's say you're an ICT business or you're any number of businesses, actually, a cap on fossil fuel use is a massive business opportunity, potentially. And if you look at um, where the company value is going to go, if oil companies lose out by writing off some of their assets, then that shareholder value is going to shift to somewhere. So, and that, so that opportunity that faces many, many businesses is a card that I don't think has been properly, I don't even think it's been properly noticed yet. Uh, and it's certainly not a card that's been played properly yet. So there ought to be a big faction of the business community, at least, pushing hard for a global deal, even if it's purely for the sake of their own commercial interests.
1: Well, such action then, that that would raise a huge question about the the value put on the oil industry and in the assets in the ground. And of course, we think about how important uh, the energy energy to the conventional energy industry is, to the world, not just in the ways we've been talking about, but from the point of view of investments, because they generate a lot of income streams for a lot of people that may not even re- realize they're benefiting from it. It could be a pensioner sitting at their, in their front yeah. room somewhere in Croydon and not realize that a chunk of their pension investment was in stat oil or whatever, and, and that's how they get paid. And that, would have, that could really be a game changer. It's a good point that the vested interest in that, in that
0: the value of that fossil fuel is spread Throughout, especially throughout the developed world, so and it, it touches us all. So if you ever invest any money in anything, unless you're very, very careful in, about how you invest it, um, it's almost certainly going to have some fossil fuels tied up in it. And it's all our countries, and some more than others, though. So. so yeah, it's, it's very widely dispersed the value in the fossil fuel. But but don't forget that in your, supposing you've um, You've invested in a in a pension fund, and there's a there's a portfolio behind that. The lost assets in the fossil fuel are going to shift to somewhere else, so that may well also be in your in your portfolio.
1: Now, I do very much agree with your earlier point about uh, you know GDP and growth, these other metrics being used crudely to somehow measure um, our happiness, which they don't reflect, and I do think that the consumer culture. That we live in in the West, and actually increasingly in some of the emerging economies, mm. you know, is a big part of the problem. It's actually a psychological problem in a way that we we invest our hopes mm. for our happiness in you know plasma screen TVs and cars and bigger houses, and we we do this because we're basically working with faulty information, obsolete paradigms, and yeah. go- governments and media, of course, they they um, they perpetuate this uh, in our minds. So it's kind of a vicious circle of delusion, basically.
0: Yes, that's right. I mean, they're only ever substitutes for the things that really make us happy um, most of the time. And that's right that we're locked into that mindset. And I think that's right that it's a cultural thing. Uh, And it's it's also propelled by a multi-billion pound industry that encourages us to think that way. So one of the things we talk about in the book is we have a little graphic of three carriages of a train and one carriage is the extraction carriage. So that's all the, fu- all the fuel getting dredged up out of the ground, and attached to that is the c- combustion carriage, which is where the fuel gets burned, um, some of it in households, but a lot of it in, in industry in the course of making all the stuff that we buy. And then the final carriage is the consumption carriage, so you can attribute all the fossil fuel emissions or all or, or the greenhouse gas emissions to human consumption. And uh, And if you add up, the extraction it turns out to be just about the same number as the, com- the figure you'd get if you added up all the combustion and it's just and it's just about the same number you'd get if you added up uh, the emissions attributed to human consumption so all those three carriages travel at exactly the same speed so if you try to put the brakes on the consumption carriage by encouraging people to have lower carbon lifestyles for example what you're up against is that the coupling with the combust the uh, combustion carriage is pretty strong. You've got all the businesses who are making their living out of uh, out of creating enough stuff, and, uh, as much stuff as they can, and persuading you to buy it. They are coupled. They are coupled to the to the consumption carriage through carriage through, you know, all the marketing and PR and advertising and all the rest of it that's encouraging you to think that you've got to have more stuff. And in turn, the guys, the the, the businesses that are making all this stuff are coupled to the, the uh, extraction carriage um, by the fossil fuel companies who have an interest in making sure that they sell their fossil fuel to somewhere and that that market is is alive and healthy. So we actually need to work on all those things together. And in terms of the, the culture of consumption, the, the consumerist culture, I think one of the questions that I don't think we have a clear answer to is how much of the way we currently do life is fundamentally unfit for purpose and needs reinventing and how much of it is fundamentally okay and it's fit for purpose um, but we just need to make one or two structural changes and then carry on as before so for example if we could bring about a global deal on uh, fossil fuel extraction then you could argue that we could still have a consumerist society and everyone could still be clamoring for as much stuff as they could get their hands on. And actually it wouldn't matter in terms of the overall global environmental impact because although one person's excessive consumption would deny somebody else maybe having enough, it wouldn't make any difference to the total carbon footprint of, of human consumption. So there's... One argument would say, look, if we could just get the cap on emissions, then we could just let the con- let the consumerist culture carry on and do its own thing, um, and it'll be fine. But another argument says, actually, you'll never succeed in getting that cap without doing something about the consumer culture first, um, because we've got to bring about the conditions in which everybody's prepared to have the cap so that the politicians fight for it. Uh, and th- and links to that, there's, there's another argument that says, actually, you know what, the consumer culture never made us happy anyway, so let's just ditch it. Let's ditch it anyway, and here's an opportunity to do so. And I think finding our way through that through that debate, I, I think we all have instincts about it. And I, I talk to people who think climate change is a big deal, but they don't really think we should tamper with the consumer culture much. Uh, and I also talk to people who have always believed that the consumer culture is uh, rotten at the core and has never really served us very well, and climate change just gives us one more good reason for ditching it, and that's probably in my heart of hearts that's probably where uh, where I come from um, in all this instinctively, but I don't think it's proven that we definitely need to reinvent the consumer culture in order to crack
1: climate change. So any mixed messages then, and contrary to uh, what you know consumer culture, what business and advertising are telling us. There's the message which you know politicians will get up and completely counter their talk about growth, and uh, depending on what the you know the purpose of their press conferences, and they will say that it is an imperative that we do something about climate change. It is the biggest threat that we're facing. But in your phrase in the book is there's just enough abstraction, complexity, and long-term uncertainty around all of the science and other things you know mm. connected to it for us. You know, as humans, we like to do this just to push the problem off to another day, kick it into the long grass. And that that they, as I mentioned earlier, in quotes, somewhere down the line, technology, some genius, an Einstein type figure will, will, you know, it'll all get worked out in the end. Because after all, we've come through a lot of problems. You know, the last 10,000 years hasn't exactly been without (laughs) uh, tumult. So here we are. So the idea is that, you know, the march of progress, the myth of progress, it must be, you know, it must go on yeah I, I think that argument that
0: we'll be okay because we've always been okay for the last ten thousand years is is um is hilarious when you look at it actually because you know what every species that has ever existed on the planet could say that about itself until the day when it came extinct so it's actually a completely non you know it's, it, there, there's uh there's no evidence whatsoever in the in the notion that' we'll, that we've we've always been okay so far so That tells us nothing at all about whether we'll be okay through this. The psychology of human denial is fascinating and critically important. So we called our book The Burning Question and asked the the burning question, how can we leave the fossil fuel in the ground? But perhaps the burning question, the real burning question behind the, the, the burning question at face value is how on earth can humankind really wake up to this? I mean, it is a massive threat. It's clear it's a massive threat, and yet we're we're sleepwalking into it. I mean, um, all of us, even even those of us who say we care about it. You know, who who can really say that their their own response to it is in keeping with the scale of the challenge we're up against? Uh, you know, and it's it's precious few of us. Uh, so how can we wake up? The psychology of human denial is is you know is well documented, and it's a, it's a fairly well understood phenomenon that if a human being gets a bit of bad news. Um, we go through a bit of a curve. It's sometimes described as a, a transition curve or a change curve where the first thing we do is deny it and then we get angry about it and then we get depressed about it and then we kind of sit down and come to terms with it and we, we face up to the reality of the situation and then finally at that point we can start picking up the pieces and working out what to do about things. And you know, humans go through that, go through that process virtually every time they encounter a bit of bad news. So if you're driving a car along the motorway and you run out of petrol, you go through exactly that process in a short space of time. First of all, you don't believe it, so you stamp your foot up and down on the accelerator a bit to see if you can get any life out of the car, and then you maybe pull over in the hard shoulder and thump the steering wheel a few times because you go cross about it, and then you get all depressed and you sort of slump down in your seat and you just think how awful the world is, I can't believe this has happened to me. And then finally, you come to terms with it, and then you start doing sensible things like ringing up the breakdown company or whatever. And you know, in, in something like that, it takes, you, it takes us 30 seconds or something to get through the curve. But when it's a very big piece of very difficult, abstract news about some problem that's gonna hit us, not in the next five minutes but, um, but in decades to come and might affect our children more than it affects ourselves and it's about this gas that you can't even see and it's about some global thing that you have to trust a whole lot of scientists about. And we've just got so many, so much wriggle room for avoiding it and finding ways of, uh, of not fully facing up to it. And we, fo- we find ourselves convincing ourselves that the proof, the proof that we don't have to face up to it properly is that um, we've, we, we've been denying it and life still feel, feels fine. And the problem is it, it's, this is something that will hit us in the future. And when you run out of fuel on the, on, on the motorway, that's a problem that you don't spend a long time in denial because the reality of the situation hits you in a very, very tangible and immediate way. And we don't have the luxury of that strong feedback loop with, uh, with climate change. We have to anticipate what is going to happen in decades to come. So we have to get an, a strong emotional response now to an uncertain risk that in a not very many decades time we might go over a tipping point which might lead to a catastrophic change in the climate maybe even a few decades on from that and we need to, get, uh, we, we need to care enough about that that it makes us take strong action today and that is a sort of, the sort of challenge that maybe humans have never had to respond to before so we, we're capable you know, we're capable of galvanizing whole communities and countries into very strong action. So, the, you know, the old analogy, but I think it's a good one, is to say, well, what happened when the Second World War came around? Uh, this country got very strongly galvanized into all kinds of action, and we learned how to crack codes and create bombs, and we, invent, we got our radar, we, we got radar working and all sorts of things in a very, very short space of time. But we understood the threat and it was a much more tangible threat and somehow we have the, the challenge for us now is how could we understand the threat at an emotional level with the same strength that we understood the threat in the you know in the in the late 30s and 40s and that's a question which i think you know nobody knows the answer to nobody knows how no, nobody knows for sure what is the what is the answer to how can humankind wake up uh, just because we don't know the answer doesn't mean there isn't one, doesn't mean we can't do it. But arguably, that is the most important burning question
1: behind the obvious burning question. Perhaps if we believed that Martians were changing the climate uh, as a way to attack us, that we might be able to get behind some action, um, well, you know, t- taking that level of psychology into account.
0: <laughs> well, we, we wriggle around with all sorts of um, the trouble with anything uncertain. You know, the human mind wriggles away from bad news as hard as it can. And the trouble with abstractions and uncertainties is they give you so much wiggle room, and we need to find a way of not getting derailed by
1: that. Well, of course, even if if you're someone who dismissed the threat of climate change, to basically that yes, the climate changes, but it's not caused by human activity, uh, mm-hmm. unless you unless you're then a believer also in abiotic oil, for example, and that's just for people who don't know what's this theory that oil within the uh, earth actually generates itself you know constantly it's renewing itself you'd have to be a believer in that but if you're not then there's still the issue of the, the supply of fossil fuels you know because you pointed out of course we can't afford to burn them for environmental reasons but there's still the, the other big issue which will yeah but they're limited so if they had no environmental impact they'd still run out at some point and that is also massive issue well,
0: yeah i mean i i think i've just um colleagues of mine have just um, written a book about the, the impact of the scarcity of oil and we've had a bit of a debate about you know, is the problem one of scarcity or one of abundance? In terms of fossil fuel, the problem is one of abundance, there's no doubt about it there's too much of the stuff and we need to have the discipline to voluntarily leave it in the ground if you take the question of oil specifically and you take the view that oil is a very particular kind of fossil fuel that can, has got use, applications that, um, that coal will never have. So, for example, we don't think, foreseeably, that you're going to be able to get the energy from coal and use it to power aeroplane. But it looks as, and to date, we, ha- we haven't really cracked how to use coal to power cars, but the electric car solves that one. If you take the view that oil's not particularly, fundamentally, all that special amongst fossil fuels, then the problem is definitely only one of abundance Um, and the idea of running out is cuckoo land. But if you take the view that oil is a very special fossil fuel and that we absolutely need to be able to burn oil to power our cars and planes, then it's possible that you could put together an argument for some sort of scarcity problem with oil at the same time as a problem of abundance of, of the other fossil fuels. But I don't think I go in the end, I don't think i go a long way with that argument because there's too much in the tar sands and we're discovering too much of it all the time and we're getting better and better at using, in the end, finding ways of doing with coal what we used to only be able to do with oil, such as drive cars, and there's always biofuels which create a hideous problem for um, the food system. But for all those reasons, I don't think the, scar- I, I don't think the scarcity problem is the big deal. The
1: problem is abundance. I think that the, the debt based monetary system that most of the world operates under is uh, a problem here in a couple of ways. One, because it demands perpetual growth, and we we're seeing all the problems with that model since the crash of 07 08. Yeah. But, but also the attempts to address the problems that stemming from that the focus is, in many ways, is shifted away from climate change. It's off a lot of people's agendas because of what's going on with, with, with banking.
0: Yes, I think that's right. So one of the dilemmas that, for example, Tim Jackson is wrestling with is how can you have a stable economic system that doesn't have growth? Because at the whole way that it's wired up at the moment is, as you say, stems from the idea that businesses get in debt and the way that they get out, the way that they manage themselves uh, is to grow their way out of debt and because debt needs servicing and so on. And I think, I think it's an interesting idea that if you were able to do away with the idea of interest on loans, for example, uh, if, you, if, you could, if you could do away with that completely, then that whole idea of debt feeding, feeding the need for growth might go but that's that's a big reinvention of of the economic system and that's another one of those questions which we ask but we and we explore in the book but we don't have in the end the final answer to is how much of the way that we do economics is fundamentally unfit for purpose some people say you've got to have growth you've got to have a growth growth growth-based economy nothing else will work and only people who wear sandals and smoke roll-ups will ever contemplate anything different and other people will say that economic growth has, uh, has been a fun, is fundamentally unhelpful. For, uh, as a, to, to have an economic model which needs to have growth uh, in all societies is fundamentally unhelpful and we've got to move away from it. And I think one conclusion we come to is that economic growth, at least in developed countries, is overvalued. We, we put too much importance on it. And we we should be asking other questions that are much more important than, than the one of economic growth. And we've got locked into some kind of very rigid thinking around that that we would do well to break out of. But the other conclusion we came to is that it's very unproven whether or not you could have growth in a carbon constrained world. So there are some people saying that we've never managed to decouple economic growth from growth in emissions. And that's true. We've never been able to grow economies without growing emissions. And we're miles away from ever achieving that. At a global level, we're miles away from achieving that. Not even doesn't even look um, hopeful, but we could be even moving anywhere towards that. But let's ask the question another way around. If we were to cap fossil fuels, would economic growth become possible? And our answer to that is that it probably would, actually, because at the end of the day, Economic growth is, is just about money, and money is a human construct. And if you cap the fossil fuel, the way that value moves around the soci- society will change. Um, different businesses will be the ones that grow. Um, the link between grow- economic growth and energy will just will be broken. And whilst there might be a bit of a hiccup in the economy whilst everyone gets used to a new way of working under a new constraint, we don't think it's at all at all proven that. Economic growth
1: for what it's worth wouldn't be possible. In
0: fact, we think it's probably likely if it's what humans really wanted We're pretty ingenious species. We'd probably find a way
1: Turning to uh, earlier decades uh, we saw upheaval in the energy uh, Market uh, specifically in the 1970s the oil shocks there a lot of writers particularly today are looking back at that whether they lived through that period or not as something of a missed opportunity to do something about uh, the fossil fuel dependency
0: climate change and fossil fuel dependency weren't on the radar with the seriousness that they are now or anything like it. And the oil crisis back then was, was, was totally unplanned. It was, it was just a situation that we found ourselves in and we had to respond to. And so um, possibly it was a missed opportunity, but I guess we shouldn't beat ourselves up about it because we didn't, we didn't realize that that was an opportunity we needed to grasp. But I think, I think there are some interesting examples from history of uh, times when there's been a constraint on energy use and uh, how that's been coped with. So one example in particular, and I hesitate to say this because you just, the, the, the country I'm about to mention is so politically loaded that the minute you, the minute you mention it, um, everybody immediately polarizes themselves to either they're either going to agree or disagree Uh, with what I'm about to say, just because of the the name of the country. But if you look at what happened uh, in Cuba, they they found themselves in a situation where they had to constrain their energy use. They didn't do it voluntarily. The constraint on energy use was imposed upon them. But they managed it. And what's really interesting about it is that, as far as we can tell, it didn't get in the way of well-being. You know, it didn't get in the way of life expectancy. It didn't get in the way of whatever your measures of well-being in the are. Having to live under the energy constraint didn't interrupt well-being. In fact, they've got, good. they've got pretty good life expectancy and so on. And there are lots of things about life in Cuba that, you know, that are quite good. I'm not going to you know, describe it as some utopian perfect society. But I think it does tell us that if we did have the discipline to impose the global cap on fossil fuels, it wouldn't get in the way of how good it is to
1: be alive. Now, the 1970s was also a time when the issue of population came to the fore. Uh, yeah. b- books such as The Limits to Growth being published, yeah. you had the establishment of the Club of Rome, and even in popular culture, films like Soylent Green and Zero Population Growth. And there was very much a feeling that, it was you know, round about the year 1999, that everything was going to collapse. But the serious message behind that was being that we couldn't carry on the way we were going and yet we have in terms of fossil fuel use and emissions but the population picture although it is controversial it, it will need to be addressed it's not quite as simple as we might all think it is
0: no it's not I and mean, population is clearly a dimension of this the more people there are the more we need to share the resources around but it's an example of a curve that used to be exponential and isn't anymore it's more like linear at the moment, and it looks as though it's going to tail off, and it looks as though it's going to come to, if, if all our other things stay stable, stable and we don't suffer any environmental catastrophes or, or anything, it looks as though it'll pop out uh, somewhere around the 9 or 10 billion mark. Um, it looks as though that's a, a, a story of, of things bec- sort of naturally managing themselves. It looks as though when societies acquire a certain level of affluence, they get to the point where... Uh, people choose not to have more than a certain number of kids. Unfortunately, the point at which people start making choices to have smaller families also turns out to be the point at which they start having really high-carbon lifestyles. And the two effects kind of counterbalance each other out. So uh, if you take a a country as a whole, the point at which it stops its population growth is is not the same as the point at which it, it stops its, carbon emissions because all that happens is the static population starts picking up the slack by growing its footprint of each person uh, that bit faster. So the the population equation is a complicated one. Uh, Again, one of the simple things you can say about it is that it looks as though it is definitely from all perspectives unhelpful for people who don't want to have a child to end up having one. (laughs) If there are any sort of simple nuggets that it's possible to distill out of all the complexities around population. That surely has got to be one
1: of them. I think it's really important that we do discuss these issues and and do more than that actually try to begin to formulate positive visions for the future, because if we're going to have a future, then we want it to be as positive as possible. And I must say, I mean, I suppose in closing, uh, there are days when I think that our fear rather than how we're going to handle this is that we will adapt as best we can to adversity when it's forced upon us?
0: Well, we, we don't know how much... If we, if we just carry on ignoring the problem, we don't know how much adversity we're going to run up against. But sooner or later, it, um, if that's our approach to all the problems that we're going to encounter as a global society that burns through resources as fast as it can, as fast as it can without much thought, then sooner or later we're going to encounter a very big problem, even if we were to stumble through the climate change one okay. So we've got to find a way of managing, uh, of managing our impacts. I think that's, that's as clear as daylight. But to, to frame it up as uh, an inevitable doom and gloom thing is I think, I think we can do a bit better than that. I think if we really play our cards right, and I think if, we've, if we're far-sighted enough and we've got enough vision, and I don't think enough positive vision, I think you're right, not enough po- positive visioning happens around this. But if we really think a bit inventively about all this, uh, we, we're, we are pursuing an opportunity agenda just as much as we're heading off a threat.
1: Well, Mike, uh, once again, the book, uh, The Burning Question, which is co-authored with Duncan Clark. Now, that's widely available, all the usual outlets, as they say. You've also got a website for that, burningquestion.info. Is there anything else you'd like to share with listeners about the book or your work?
0: Well, we, um, as I say, it's, it's our attempt to, to get some macro-perspectives Um, out there and get some big picture thinking all in one place in an an accessible book and we think that everyone who's serious in uh, every serious politician in the world needs to understand the issues in the book so we're going to give a copy to every MP and peer in the next couple of months and see how much uh, see if we can get to the point at which everyone who's in UK politics uh, has got no excuse
1: for not understanding at least the macro dynamics of it Excellent. Well, Mike Berners-Lee, thank you so much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. Well, folks, that's it for another week. As ever, thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please check out the website LegalizeFreedom.com, that's Legalize-Freedom.com, where you'll find an archive of programs on many equally interesting and important topics. Until next time, I'm Greg Moffat, and you've been listening to LegalizeFreedom.com.